One Sunday morning, there was a pastor of a church, and he noticed a little boy standing out in the foyer looking at a plaque up on the wall, and he was just mesmerized by that plaque, and he stood there for quite a while. The pastor finally came over and said, uh, Johnny, what you looking at there? He said, you know, I don't know. He said, what is that? He said, what are all those names? And the pastor said, oh, that's men and women who have died in service. And Johnny thought about that a minute. He just looked at that plaque. Pastor? Was it the 9 or the 10.30 service that they died in? <laughs> so, hopefully, we'll all make it through today's service alive. And by the end of it, we'll see that God has a plan for our life, maybe bigger than you thought. You know, the more I'm around people, the more I come to understand that all of us listen to voices and we operate our lives on the voices that we hear I'll never forget how glad I was to hear somebody say that they had a committee living in their head, uh, because I did too, and I thought I was the only one. But they told me that in listening to this committee, that they had to learn to discern which voice to listen to, and whatever voice they fed, that would be the voice that would direct and grow their lives. You know, for instance, I shared this in Celebrate Recovery a while back. Uh, there have been times in my life where I was standing holding a cup of hot coffee, talking to somebody, and in my mind it said, I wonder what would happen if I threw this on them. <laughs> to date, I have not thrown any coffee on anybody, so I chose not to listen to or act on what that voice says. So now, my life centers around listening to the right voice. You know, some of us have acted on that voice in our, in our heads that tell us you're worthless. You'll never amount to anything. Others have listened to that voice that says, you know what, I'm pretty good. I'm not as bad, at least, as those people. You know, the really messy people, the people that I try to avoid every week. I'm not that bad. So we come to church thinking things like, I'll go, but it's probably not going to do any good. Or we come to church thinking, you know, I've got everything under control. I'll just go and help the prodigals. That's why I'll go. The ones that have been in the deepest, stinkiest, dirtiest mud of the pig pen. Well, before we get too far into this, I would like you to consider this. I believe everyone in here, no matter where you've been, is a prodigal. No matter what voice you've listened to, even if you identify more with the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, because the older brother, in telling himself how much good he'd done and how good he always was and how pleasant he was to be around, had actually, in his arrogance, found himself in the stinky mud of his own pig pen. So the question for today is this. What voice are you listening to? What voice are you listening to? Because it's time, it's time that we stop listening to those voices that have been directing our path, that tell us that we're either really, really good or we're really, really bad, and listen to the only voice that matters and take into consideration what the creator of the cosmos and beyond says about us. So today I would submit to you that because of what God says about you, every one of you who are in this room who are a follower of Jesus Christ, we are destined for greatness. 
And that's what we're going to be talking about today, destined for greatness. And you might be thinking, hold on, Mac. You're saying that you're going to be great? Doesn't that sound a little arrogant? I mean, God tells us to be humble, right? And you're exactly right. God does tell us to be humble. And I'm humble enough to realize that trying to run my life on my own power, run my own show, I will end up in the same place every time, and I will crash and burn. The listening to my own voice or the voice of others telling me who I am, I am not destined for greatness, but I am destined for failure. But when God takes control, actually when I relinquish my control to him, he's such a gentleman, he never comes in and takes it from me. He asks me to relinquish it to him. And when I do, he says, I will stoop down from on high and draw you out of that slimy pit you found yourself in, and I will raise you up to be great. Psalms 18.35 says this, You give me your shield of victory, and your right hand sustains me. You, O oh God, stoop down to make me great. God, that, God said that, not me. He says he's looking for ways to raise us up, to make us great. You know, when you finally come to the end of yourselves, the creator of the cosmos and beyond is looking for ways to bring the prodigal back home. Do you ever find a verse in the Bible that you didn't know was there? <laughs> I was reading not too long ago, and I found one. I'm like, where did, who put that in there? I mean, where did that come from? 2 Samuel 14, 14. Listen to this. You may have never heard it either. It says this. Like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. Physical death, he says here, is not optional. It's coming, unless Jesus comes back first. But for the vast majority of people here on planet Earth, physical death is not an option. We will meet that appointed time to die. In and of ourselves, we can't do anything about that. Like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die but, and remember, anytime the scripture says but, you need to really start paying attention because he's going to say something totally different than he just said. But God does not take away life. I just said, I thought you just said we were going to die. He did. So this has got to be something a little bit different than physical death. It's got to mean spiritual death. Here, it says God does not take away our spiritual life. We choose that on our own. We give up our spirituality or our nearness to God because of choices that we make, not God. But God does not take away life. Instead, listen to this, he devises ways so that the banished person, that would have been each one of us at one point in our life, so that the banished person may not remain estranged from him. God himself looks for ways to bring us home. I don't know about you, but that was tremendous news for me. Does anybody else think that's good news, that God is looking for a way to bring you back home? Man, that's great. So we have to develop a baseline here. And the baseline of who, who God is going to help is who needs help and who doesn't. And I would make the point right here that I think it's everyone, because no matter how good you've been, Every one of us in here was cut off from God at one time or another. Romans 3.23 takes care of that where it says, For all, leaves out nobody, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yeah, Mac, but you know, I know some pretty good people. Well, me too. I do too. 
You know, I'll never forget when I first became a Christian, there was a man that became part of my life, and all my friends watched him really closely because he was somebody that we wanted to emulate. We wanted what he had. I mean, it seemed like he never messed up. He had a great spiritual wife. His kids were spiritual. His dog never went to the bathroom in the wrong place. Everybody in the family was just fantastic. And so we thought to ourselves, we've got to ask him a question. So we looked around one day when we were all alone, just me and a couple friends and him. And we said, look, we've got a really serious question. We won't breathe a word of this to anybody. But are you an angel? To which he smiled and responded, no. And we looked at each other and we said, you know, I think that's what an angel would say. <laughs> but we later talked to his wife and his wife said, you know, although God called him a saint, he was no angel. So the most holy man that we knew that we wanted our lives to be like as he was following Jesus Christ, he too needed to be rescued. And that's the story with every one of us sitting in this room today. That's where we find ourselves. We came up short. Or as God himself wrote with his finger on the wall a message to King Belshazzar, meeny, meeny, tickle parson. He said, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. You have been weighed on the balances and you have failed the test. Daniel 5, 27. So I would say to you that your best efforts to live a good, holy life came up short, and you found yourself separated from God. So point one, I'm giving you point one at the end of point one. Point one is this. There is no one good enough in and of themselves to be in God's presence. No one's good enough. We are all prodigal sons and daughters. All of us were separated from God. All of us came up short. All of us failed the test. Point two. I'm going to give you this one at the beginning of point two. The rescue. Point two is the rescue. You know, growing up in the swamps and bayous and mud of Louisiana, every man, every young man there aspires to have two things, a boat and a four-wheel drive pickup truck. If you've got those two things, you are set. You know, and I know in some parts of the country, mud can be a natural disaster. We see mud slides all the time. Or like here, I wasn't aware of the fifth season until I moved here which we're just fast approaching right now, right? Mud season. But in Louisiana, we think mud's fun. We just get bigger tires and play in it. So at 19 years old, I had saved up enough money to buy a brand new, right off the showroom floor, 1978 four-wheel drive pickup truck. It cost $6,000 tax title out the door. I was something. Man, I couldn't have been any more happy. I immediately took that truck and jacked it up as far as I could jack it up and put the biggest tires that I could put on it because I was now set to conquer any and every mud hole that I came upon. Well, one particular Friday night, I was out with my girl, Mary. We'd been married for two years, but I was still trying to impress her for some reason. And so I went looking for the biggest mud hole that we could get into, and boy, did I find it. Man, it was like a small lake. It was on a pipeline. The pipeline was so, it was so wide, a winch wouldn't reach from one side to the other. And it was a mud hole like you had not seen. So I drove off in that thing, and I, I mean, I had the pedal to the metal. And I was going forward for a pretty good ways, but after about 100 feet, after not going forward anymore, I was going straight down. And I realized that if I don't stop this, we are going under, all the way under. Right now, we were halfway up the doors in mud and water. You couldn't open the doors. The winch was underwater. There was no getting out. I needed help. Well... 
Long story short, uh, I took Mary out of the window of the truck and on my back carried her to dry land. We hiked out and we went to a pay phone to get help. <laughs> yeah, no cell phone, a pay phone. I found a pay phone. I called my friends. But first of all, it was a little embarrassing because I didn't want to call my friends because if I called my friends, that would have meant, meant, meant what? I, I'd failed, right? I didn't make it through the mud hole. My truck wasn't big enough. But I swallowed my pride, and I went and made the call. My friend, after laughing, said, yeah, I'll be there in just a little while. I know where you're at. So me and Mary caught a ride back close to where we were, and then we hiked back in and waited at the truck. After about an hour, I saw lights coming over the hill of a lone pickup truck. And I thought, all right, he's finally made it here. And then lights from another pickup truck and another you see, my friend had called all of our friends and told them where I was. And by the time it was over with, 25, count them, 25 trucks and Jeeps with their winches were ready to assist us. And I'll never forget in that moment the feeling of being loved. Because I had friends who stopped what they were doing to come and help us, to rescue us. Before the night was over, six more trucks would get stuck rescuing us. But eventually we all made it out and we all made it home. But I, I was thinking about that story and I thought about how God does the exact same thing when we call on Him. He stops what He's doing and He comes to our rescue. My absolute favorite chapter in the Bible is Psalms 18 because it very clearly and concisely shows how God works to bring us back home when we call out to him from the depths of our heart. You'll want to write that down. I don't, yeah, we don't have it on the screen. So Psalms 18 is a really, really encouraging chapter. It starts out with David, who is a rascal of a man, right? But he happens to be a man after God's own heart. So there's hope for rascals too, right? Yeah, amen. I can testify to that, yeah. He finds himself on death's doorstop. And not only did he call out to God, it says in the beginning of that, he cried out to God from the depths of his heart to please come and help him. And I love what it says next. When God heard his cry, it said he, God, became angry. Angry at David for calling him? Oh, no. Angry at David's enemies who were bringing death to him. Then something very amazing to him. When God in his anger, his righteous anger, going to help one of his own, says he rides the clouds. He mounts up on the clouds, and then they're being driven, it says, by the wind. And, I mean, get this picture in your head. Star Wars got nothing on this, right? I mean, when you're thinking about God, he's riding clouds, and then all of a sudden he starts throwing hailstones, God-sized hailstones, and lightning bolts, he routes them so he can rout the enemy, David's enemy. And when the enemy is subdued, he reaches down from on high, takes hold of David, and snatches him off of the battlefield in the nick of time. And then David would say this about that whole encounter. The first 16 verses are amazing. You've got to go home and read those. David said this, he rescued me, starting in verse 17, from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. 
He brought me into a special, special place, spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Did you hear that last part? It does not say, he rescued me because he loved me. God loves everybody, even the ones who are opposed to him, his enemies. So it's something different. He said, I rescued David because I delighted in him. You know what? God just liked David. When you like somebody, what do you do with them? You do things with them, right? I mean, we're commanded to love everybody. But when you like somebody, you invite them over for a meal. You say, hey, let's go fishing. Let's do something together. You see, David, a man after God's own heart, was a prodigal. And God wanted him home. So he would use that terrible time in David's life to bring him back home. David would later say in Psalm 75, I'm in deep trouble, rushed to my aid, for only you, God, can help and save me. Only you, God, can help and save me. How easy is it for you to ask for help? Most of us probably not too easy, right? Because if we do ask for help, that's an admission that I can't do whatever it is that I'm wanting to do. And people might think I'm weak or foolish or, or less than perfect than, than this image that I betray to everybody. Like, I've got it all going on, and everybody knows that image. Well, I want to let you in on a little secret. Those of you who are here to help the rest of the really messed up people and trying to maintain that perfect exterior so that we'll think that you don't have any struggles in your life, here's the secret. Get those impact pins ready. Here's the secret. We know. You got struggles too. You're human. We all do. This church, and what I love about this church, is it's full of prodigals who know they are not perfect and are reaching out to all the other prodigals to let them know that hope is possible. You know, I love the story of the prodigal son. I wish we could really tear it down in depth, but we don't have time for that this morning. But in the story in Luke chapter 15, which I believe, again, we can all find ourselves in that story. We see the son, after wishing his father dead, because you don't ask for an inheritance unless you wish the person was out of there because you don't get it till they're dead, right? So in wishing his father dead, he gets his money and leaves for a distant country. And you might be thinking, when you th just think about this story, how foolish that is. Because his father had to be a wealthy man. And had a great house and had a lot of land. Why would you ever leave there? I would never do that. No way. Really? Well, think about it. How many of us have gone to that distant country of accumulating wealth and things? Or that land of power and control? Or status and admiration. Prestige. You know, people look up to me. Or those slightly closer distant countries that are a little easier to get to sometimes, like sexual gratification. Or the land of drugs and alcohol and food. And at one time or another, every one of us in here have found us in that distant country of self-reliance. I can do this on my own. Well... As I thought about that, I'm reminded that I am a prodigal son every time that I search for unconditional love in places like those where it cannot be found. You see, our Father loves us so much, and this is heavy, 
He allows us to leave with the risk that we may not make it back. All the while, he stands on a hill looking as far as his eyes can see, waiting on our return. And so I believe that the Father will use whatever life's circumstances that we find ourselves in to encourage our trip home. Why? He devises ways to bring us home. So you may be like the younger son and find yourself in a place where nobody really wants you around. They don't care if you come to the the family parties or not. He devises ways to bring us home. A place where my health is failing now because of poor choices I made in my youth. He devises ways to bring us home. A place where I no longer receive the admiration and praise that I deserve. He will bring you low to bring you home because he devises ways to bring us home. A place where drugs and alcohol and sex and food no longer comfort me. He devises ways to bring us home. He's looking for any excuse, any reason to bring each one of us home into a meaningful, productive, effective way of life. It means that he might have to get us down in the stinkiest, muddiest, nastiest mud of the pig pen where other people can see how dirty you're around and don't even want us to be around them anymore, he'll use that to bring us home. Whatever it is, you fill in the blank. He will use whatever we place in our lives above him to humble us to bring us back. Our Father longs to hear four words from each one of us. Can I come home? Those are the words he wants to hear. To a place where we're welcomed to return even when and especially when we understand and show up totally empty-handed. It's a realization that when I get home, I got nothing to offer except me. That's it. I have bankrupt everything else. It's in that moment of brokenness that I come to a limited understanding that my father, who has been waiting on my return, wants to cover me. And like we read earlier, it says he wants to cover me with his shield of victory, sustain me with his mighty right hand while he stoops down from on high to lift me and you up to make us great. And he does this for a couple of reasons, makes us great. And none of them are so we can boast about how great we are. There's two reasons. First of all, to show how much he loves us. And secondly, for us to show others that that same love is available to them. He saves us and loves us so that, point three, we can enter the race. He doesn't save us to come sit here every Sunday morning. He saves us to, for what we're going to do all the other six days of the week when we're out there. This is gravy. Being with family this morning, out there is the hard work. But that's what he saves us for. He said, I want you to enter the race. Well, you know, there, all of us know this hill, not far from here. At least that's what they call it up here in Colorado. I'm from Louisiana. I've seen hills before. These ain't hills. These are mountains. Seriously. 
Well, there's this hill that they call down here that we all know is the incline, right? And it's only a mile long. If you haven't done it yet, you might be thinking, ha, piece of cake, a mile. Anybody can do that. Yeah, that's what I thought too. But this mile ascends 2,000 feet vertically. And the average grade is between 45 degrees and 68 degrees. There's 2,744 steps, all at different heights. And when I start this thing, I'm thinking, no problem, piece of cake, right? I'll take two steps at a time. But then the oxygen gets a little thinner, and the going gets a little steeper, and the steps are at random heights, and I go down to taking one step at a time. And then about three-quarters of the way up, you'll see the summit, right? And you'll look, fired up, I got this thing. And you get there, and it's a false summit. Who put that on there? It wasn't on the brochure either. You see this false summit, and when you get there, you see that the going gets even steeper and more risky from that to the real summit. Then someone passes you up and says something like, Hey, beautiful day for a climb, right? I'm like, (laughs) something deep inside of you says, though, you know what? It's worth it. I'm a winner just for being out here today, even if I don't make it all the way to the top. But you keep going, and by this time, for me, I'm taking two steps for every one step, so it's like a shuffle. (laughs) I mean, I'm taking, it's taking me a while, believe me. But I don't stop. I never stop. There are people passing me up. They don't seem affected by the altitude of the grade. But then occasionally I'll pass somebody. And in my oxygen depleted self, I'll think, what a stud I am. (laughs) Only to realize that I am one slow turtle passing a slightly slower turtle. But in that moment, I think about the encouragement I've been getting. And I say something like, hey, we're going to make it. We just got to keep going. And I encourage them to make it to the top. Then when you get close to the top and you really see the summit, you get that burst of energy. And when you get to the top, it's so crazy because people start clapping and cheering for you like you're the winner. Like I just got, I just crossed the line first. And you realize then it's not about winning or losing. Just making it to the top. I won. They won. And they were there to cheer me on. Well, we find ourselves in the same place in the race of life. God makes us great, not so that we'll come in first. He makes us great so we can tell others that by entering the race, they win too. And there's going to be days in this life where you're taking two steps, you're whistling about everything, you're just going, two steps for everyone. Everything's going fantastic. And then tomorrow comes when it seems like everybody's passing us by. You can't hardly take two steps to make one step. It's going terrible. But people say things like, hey, brother, hang in there. I'm praying for you. And you remember by looking back from where you came, the road you've been on. And you'll come up on those false summits when you have to start working on a new struggle or a new character defect that God's put in in front of you to deal with. And you wonder, is this even worth it? But then again, looking back, you see where you've come from. And you say, I will make it. I can do this. And you finally reach the top. And in that moment, you realize this is what I was made for. I was made to stand here and help others up that last 10 feet to cheer them on. So with that realization in life, we share with others, no matter their place 
in life, that God has a plan for them. We invite them to church or to celebrate recovery to meet other prodigals who can give them hope. And listen to this. We talk to everybody about Jesus, and we do not get intimidated by others who have a greater station in life than we do, or we don't get disgusted by those who are more of a prodigal than I was. I'll never forget when someone brought the head of a doctoral program to my cabinet shop one Tuesday morning. We met in my shop Tuesday and Thursday mornings at 6 o'clock for a Bible study, and they brought the head of the doctoral program there, and I'm thinking, wow, this guy has got more degrees than he can even remember. What am I ever going to have to say to him? Well, that shop that morning was full of prodigals, and we were sharing about how God had saved us, and we were in 2 Thessalonians 1.6, where it says this, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when our Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with blazing fire with his powerful angels. Listen to this. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. At that moment, he raised his hand very enthusiastically, letting me know I needed to stop right then. Well, I did, and I asked him, what, well, what is it? He said, well, who is it that's going to punish who here? I said, well, in this verse, it's God who punishes those who are disobedient. He said, I thought it was Satan was the punisher. I said, well, not here. It's God. Well, he looked at me very professional-like looking and, and said to me this, that's pressing business. Carry on. And so I said, yes, sir. And I did. You know, he told me later, through, after several Bible studies, he said, sometimes I feel like I've been educated well beyond my intellect. Many of us might have been there. He said, this message is so simple, I almost missed it. I want Jesus Christ to be the Lord of my life. On the other end of the spectrum, I shared with a man who was a Skid Row alcoholic someone who lived under bridges, someone who was illiterate. And he heard the message of hope in Jesus, but he thought, you know, that's just too good for me. I'm not good enough. I've been too bad. That message can't be for me. I assured him that it was, but he just couldn't believe it. Well, he came to meetings and to church for about six months and then went out and got drunk one night. Well, someone told me where he was, so I went, me and a friend went to get him. He was in an old run-down flea bag of a hotel out in the middle of nowhere, I knocked on the door, not knowing what really to expect. He came to the door, looked at me, said, what do you want? And I said, I just came to get the brother that I loved. In that moment, his heart melted because nobody in his his family had ever told him that they loved him. They didn't want him to be a part of their family. But I did want him to be a part of mine. I took him home in the middle of the night, fixed him some breakfast, sobered him up, and shared with him about the prodigal son. He heard that story and said, you know what? If he can do it, I can too. You know, that was 25 years ago, and he's sober still today. He can read now, and he's sharing with others about the hope that he found. Yeah. Never, never discount somebody because they look like a lesser prodigal son or a lower prodigal son or daughter than you are. All right, to wrap it up, here's what we've looked at today. Point one, there is no one good enough to be in God's presence in and of themselves. Everyone in here is a prodigal son or daughter. All of us were separated from God and came up short. Point two, 
There had to be a rescue. We could not do this on our own. We could not do enough good things to make up for the bad thing that we had done. Point three, you were made to enter the race because our Father has lifted you up to make you great. The greatest people I know in life are the ones that give away what they've been giving. You know, if you're sitting here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, a destiny of greatness is awaiting you. Not just a destiny to show up here and sit in one of these chairs every week. A destiny of greatness to share with others about the hope you've found. You can change the eternity of somebody's life. <laughs> that just blows me away every time I think about that. Change the eternity of somebody's life just by opening your mouth. You have the words of life in your mouth and your Father has given them to you. So pick it up and run with it. Don't let anything get in the way. You were made for such a time as this. I don't know where you're at this morning, but if you have any needs this morning, if you need somebody to pray with you, if you just want to come down here and pray, whatever it is, I invite you now as together we stand and sing this last song.